The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 80 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, along with my co-host, Chief Information Security Officer of Siena, Andy Benello. Andy, how goes it today? Great, brother. And the Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Thomas Pager. What's the good word, brother Tom? All good, man. Happy to be here. I want to emphasize the little opinions expressed on the show are my own and not to my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that have been privileged to or result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before I get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Soccer Security Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, Go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So I'm feeling much better than I did last week. I appreciate everybody hanging in there with me. Uh, man, I had a couple calls come in and ask me if I was okay. <laughs> I, I really, uh, I sounded like crap last week. I really apologize. But uh, as you can probably tell, I'm feeling better. We had a great show last week. We tried out our first TF7 cybersecurity expert panel. So I really think that this is going to do well. And, I, and I'm thinking about doing that more often. And I'm thinking about doing it on a third segment of every show and maybe blasting out maybe some news on the first segment and a special guest on the second segment to kind of mix it up a little bit. I think it's going to take a while to get there, but we'll see what happens as the show progresses. But I'm kind of excited about how the show is maturing and, you know, we're growing and listeners all the time. Like Again, last month, you know, another, another record set last month, so I couldn't be happier. The, the producers are, are thrilled. And, and last week's show was, uh, was really awesome, okay? It was really awesome. We had a great panel. Uh, we had our two frequent co-hosts, you know, Tom and, and Andy were both on, on the show. Everybody's familiar with who they are by now. And then we had a special guest on the show with us as well, the Chief Security Officer of the National Australia Bank, David Fairman, who all together made up our, our expert panel, our first expert panel. So the panel had a great discussion. Uh, we spoke about all the hype around the crowded solutions market. And the panelists analyzed the true effectiveness that so many products are really having on our organization's defense and death security posture, right? So the real question being, are we really solving any problems here? You know, that's what we were really asking ourselves last week. We took a deep dive into the issues, including whether the entire cybersecurity industry is all smoke and mirrors, which is sort of the theme of the show. And uh, we did... Uh, you know, we did some analysis on some recent interviews that were done over at RSA by some high-profile cybersecurity folks, and we really sat down and asked the question, is this really just a fear-driven industry with a bunch of opportunists taking advantage of the chaos of a poorly constructed internet that has been stowed upon us all? So, look, I think it was a great show. We also talked about how con convergent cybersecurity models, or, or security models, I should say, in Australia 
are gaining attention with David providing us great insight on, on how the convergent security model is doing at the National Australia Bank, uh, as well as how companies currently share cyber intelligence with the United States government and the Five Eye Alliance. We, we kind of take a look at, hey, look, if we need to do things differently. Do we, you know, do we need to take a look at how we share information, what information should be shared and when and who it should be shared with, right? So a lot of right, really great questions. We sort of capped off the, the show on the third segment with the state of election security around the world, which we think is really important. We're going to continue to keep on covering. So all this and much, much more with our special guest, David Fairman, the Chief Security Officer of the National Australia Bank on last week's episode. That's episode number 79 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage. It's really that easy. You can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is really cool. I think it's a really impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world that have been interviewed right here on Task Force 7 Radio. And of course, we have our news section, which is sort of developing. We have a lot of news on there. We're actually doing pretty good on it. We're probably putting up there at least, you know, three, four, five, six, you know, best news articles of the day that we see. And, uh, you know, people can even post and make comments and do things like that right there. So you can find all your latest cybersecurity news and even news on Task Force 7 Radio. And like I said, you can write your own comments and on the different articles and topics that we talk about. So it's a lot of fun. If, if you uh, want to see all the different playback mediums, we're on 11 right now. And people usually have uh, preferences on which ones they really like. And we've made it easy for you to find all the playback mediums that Task Force 7 is on. You hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage and it'll take you right down uh, to the bottom of the page where it'll say, you know, all, all, the, all, the, all the places that you can subscribe to will be right at your fingertips, right on the TF7 radio website. It's the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family too. So this way you get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site and, and the site gets more robust. You'll get notified about TF7 extras, the Encore episodes, which we'll probably post one this week, uh, which will be great. I'm, I'm, I'm debating on which one it is. I got a couple in mind. So I guess we'll sort of keep it a surprise. And then uh, you, and, and all, all the type of other shows that, and, and events that you might have missed going on. You can actually, the easiest way to do it is to subscribe right to the website. You get all your TF7 Radio news and events and all the information on the upcoming TF7 network too. So check us out, folks. www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So we have yet another great show for you this evening. We're going to have Robert Vessio on the show with us tonight. And Bob is the Chief Analytics Officer of Secure Systems Innovation Corporation. And he is recognized as one of the industry's foremost experts in the area of cyber risk economics, which we think is a really cool uh, topic. And that's why we wanted to have Bob on. Bringing more than 20 years of experience to his role at SSIC, Bob is responsible for the creation and development of X Analytics, and we're going to be asking a lot about that tonight, the company's proprietary patented method for measuring and modeling cyber risk. That sounds very cool. Previously, Bob served as the Global Director of Verizon's Advanced Security Services, Verizon Security Management Programs, and Verizon's MSS Client Services Team. In his tenure, 
He was responsible for pre-sale support, product management, service delivery and operations, quality and assurance risk modeling, and executive sponsorship. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm very excited to welcome Mr. Bob Vessio to the show. Bob, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you, George. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on. Hey, so it's good to have you here. I'm really excited about this interview. Um, I want to get right into it. I'm going to jump right into it because we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the issues on this show, and we have a lot of, a lot of stuff to cover here. Uh, I want to talk a lot about, you know, what is the biggest weakness or gap within cyber risk management that you see in the industry today? Yeah, George, great. For me, it's that risk management is usually, outside of cyber, usually translates back to things that are financial. Uh, the financial risk that you're taking on buying a piece of property or making a trade. And what I find it is interesting with cyber is that we tend to talk about risk management, but we never bring up the economics. And, uh, and so for me and for other executives and board members that I speak with, um, I think we would all agree that if we could start translating cyber metrics, cyber risk metrics into economic outputs, then better informed risk management decisions could be made at the executive and board level, which right now seems to be uh, a very big leap from the current metrics to what the board and executives are expecting at the end of the day. So th this is interesting how about, you, you, you know, you, you talk about the economics of it, right? And so I don't think a lot of people think about the economics of things. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, it's, it's hard enough just to cut, get people to think about things from a risk-based uh, perspective and, and prioritize risk. Uh, in, in their strategy, right? And even, even when we talk about vulnerabilities and how people prioritize the risk in the whole process and, and you get into operations, I just don't think that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people out there understand, at least in the, um, in the uh, cybersecurity space, because you need all these, you understand what to do, because you need all these different skill sets, I think, when it comes to not only the measuring the risk and prioritizing the risk and then executing on that and where do you get the biggest bang for your buck. What do you think, executives and boards want to know about cyber risk when they talk to the, the, the CISOs of these organizations? Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, I think it boils down to two key components. Um, one, I think they'd like to understand on an annual basis how much loss should be expected from cyber incidents or cyber peril. Um, you know, this could be related to data breaches, ransomware, denial of service interruption, right? Lots of different things. But, but ultimately, I think that if they could take you know, all of the vulnerability metrics and incident response metrics and other metrics that are typical and translate that into some expected value. We expect to lose 13 million or 15 million or 20 million on an annual basis due to cyber incidents. I think that's one big question that they're looking to be uh, for an answer to. The second <clears throat> is when, it's not if, right? It's really when, as we all know. When something bad happens, then what does that really mean to our organization? What does it mean in direct costs and indirect costs and opportunity costs like brand damage? And uh, are we talking about something that is catastrophic as in we could lose our entire business or something that's highly damaging as in it could be worth, um, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in damage to our organization or something even less than that. But, but if that other question, right? So the first part is uh, what is the annual expected loss? And the other part is when something bad happens, um, what does that damage look like? <clears throat> then I think we'd be solving a huge part of the equation for the executives. Hey, hey, Bob, quick question for you, man. So are you also getting, you know, how much is enough, right? 
when's yeah. enough enough? Like, are you getting that? Well, and I think it ties back to those two things. Yeah, absolutely. So when I mentioned expected loss, you know, that annual expected loss amount, I think there is a point where it becomes comfortable. Um, you know, based on my experience and talking with executives and boards, somewhere around 1% or less of annual revenue starts to create a comfort level where they can absorb that loss on an annual basis. No different than say Target realizes they're gonna have shoplifters in their stores and they just absorb that loss in some capacity. Um, and so uh, if you can get to that place where they understand what that comfortable place is to absorb the annual expected loss, then I think it does start to change those uh, conversations. Do we really need to patch that vulnerability? Do we need to really implement that new firewall or intrusion protection device or whatever else it happens to be? And I think at a certain point, uh, there is a realization as the world's been evolving year over year for let's say the last 20 years, they're spending a lot money on site really making a difference at the end of the day. Data breaches are happening, ransomware events are happening, interruptions are happening. So is all of that spend really making sense? And I think as you put the economics together, you can start making ROI or uh, uh, return on investment based decisions. And where there is an upside down return on investment, you can decide, let's just put the brakes on and not move forward. Or maybe it might be better to try to transfer that risk to something else, say like a cyber insurance policy. Uh, that represents a better return on investment. But Andy, directly to your point, I do think uh, organizations are starting to ask, is enough enough at this point? Yeah, so it's interesting that you talked about putting a dollar value on certain incidents. Um, and, you know, back when I got my CISO certification from Carnegie Mellon, we did things like return on security investments uh, exercises. And we did these, what we called Rossies. And they don't teach that anymore uh, over there. Tom, Tom let me know that they don't, they don't teach that anymore. And I think they, they've gone in a different direction. But I found uh, some value in that. I found some value in that exercise in, in terms of trying to put a value on certain incidents that would happen. And we'd be bringing up at, at, at certain teams. It, it, the engineers would always say on the side of the house, they would always say, no, we can't do that. You can't put any, you, know, you can't start you know, putting value to you know, the risk mitigation controls that we put in place. And then, then you have the line of business guys going and saying, wait a minute, you know, the CISOs from the sectors, right? Or from the line of business. So if you have a CISO that runs a sector that reports up to the central CISO or the group CISO for the enterprise, those guys sort of had a different take because they're always dealing with the business executives. And they would always say, well, wait a minute, you know, I, if I take a look at some of the other incidents that happen in similar organizations and similar size and scope with similar products and then have problems and we took the losses that they have from those problems, I could probably take or, or some type of reasonable estimation that what would happen to us if a similar incident happened. I mean, do you, do you find that to be the case, Robert? Robert? And, and, and look, do you think that, you know, it's still very valuable exercise and that it can be done putting these, you know, values on incidents that you're, you know, allegedly mitigating by, you know, putting in certain products and controls and processes and, and such? Yeah, so first of all, I, I absolutely do believe that there's value in those exercises, uh, George, to your first point. Um, and I do think that there is enough data out there, regardless of some of the debates on the topic, right? I do think there's enough representative data points, and in some cases, objective data points, that allow us to build distinct ranges. So if an incident of similar type were going to happen to our organization, it could cost us somewhere between X and Y. There is definitely enough data to be able to pull off putting those figures together. 
Um, I think when the answer is, well, we don't have enough data, I really think that ends up just becoming an excuse at the end of the day to fall back on traditional metrics and try to build a subjective story versus uh, an economic story on why something should be done inside an organization, right? Again, whether it's patching or buying a new product or service or whatever else it happens to be. But absolutely, I think there's enough data out there um, and you can start classifying incidents in distinct categories. Ransomware would be a category. Denial of service interruption would be a category. Data breaches, uh, for example, could be another category. And for each of those, you could build out an understanding of what those impact amounts would be. Of course, each of those would have to have some sort of scale related to it. So if you're talking data breach, the volume of records and the type of records would relate to that scale, and you'd have to consider that as a variable. Um, if you're talking about, say, something like denial of service interruption, then there's a time element that's a scale. You're talking 30 minutes, one hour, four hours, eight hours, 24 hours. Um, and as long as you put those corresponding variables into those categories, then, George, directly to your point, you can build out a much better understanding of what those damages could look like at the end of the day. You know, I, I can't agree with you more, but I got to tell you, I think you and I are in the minority when it comes to the, you know, the industry as a whole. Like if I put us, put us in the room with a bunch of people who are on the security governance teams from each one of the, you know, maybe the top 50, you know, companies in the United States, I think you're going to get an opposite answer. I think you're going to get, you know, because I've got a tremendous amount of resistance to this when I, when I've ever brought this up in conversation. So what are you hearing, if anything, from CISOs or other executives that should change the way we think about cyber risk? Well, you know, something I've been hearing recently, and this gets to a point that Andy brought up earlier. I'm starting to see where the conversation is shifting. Um, for example, I have a customer that's in the energy sector. And they're going through the process of moving from carbon-based energy sources to renewable energy sources, you know, like wind or solar. And one of the big questions that are, that's being raised inside the corporation is, how do we improve margin across the business? Because as they're making that shift from carbon to renewable energy sources, margin obviously is nowhere near the same. So where can we start to cut back? And I think as those questions start to get raised more and more across different industry sectors, energy being one, we'll probably see it in retail, uh, probably see it in financial services and others as well, where they really need to start making decisions based on not just a gut feel or some sort of concern about an active threat or emerging threat pattern, but more based on does this thing really make financial sense or not? And can we really start deciding what we don't have to do as compared to what we have to do. And George, I think as that shift is happening, and it's slow right now, but as that shift happens, I think it's gonna change the entire dynamic for the CISO uh, that currently operates today. Hey, and George, just to jump in, I know you mentioned Carnegie Mellon. I think one of the big changes at Carnegie Mellon is they're offering both a chief risk officer and a chief information security officer. So I think what they're trying to do is really uh, teach that as a separate subject, as in, you know, quantifying risk, looking at like ISO 27001, making sure that you have robust risk registries. And they're I think they're, they're trying to do is make sure the CISOs are now um, uh, speaking the same language as everybody else. So when you do a return on security investment, sometimes the CFO doesn't understand it. And so what they're trying to do is make them more business uh, aware. And then the idea with the chief risk officer, they're encouraging CISOs to report into CROs. So you're taking a risk-based approach to everything. 
do you call it the same thing now? Because we called it Rossi's before, but we made three different Rossi's. We made one, I think, for the legal team, one for the finance team, one for the risk team. So we had three different – they all said the same thing. You know, it was the uh, message, but we just had a different format to, you know, sort of speak the language of the business that we were actually talking to. Is that, how does that change? It's still there. I think what, what's more important is uh, understanding budgets, understanding uh, the impact to all lines of business. And what's even more important now is like looking at a risk register and saying, okay, how do we quantify a cyber risk versus a business risk versus a physical security risk versus whatever? So they rank the risk. And then you can holistically look at the entire company and say, all right, what is the cost for this? Instead of trying to go, here's my return on security investment for one thing. Here's the, here's the total budget we have. Here's our top risks to the company. Here's how all the lines of business, everybody understand it. And here's who's going to pay for what and how we attack it all together. So I think they're looking a broader, more holistic. So kind of not that they don't teach that part. It's just uh, not as uh, prevalent as it used to be. Right. Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, so Bob, you mentioned before that, uh, you know, a lot of people think there's not enough data to understand the cyber economics piece of this. Like, what does it take to actually get people to understand that we could, put a number to a, a, a risk, a, a certain type of risk, a certain type of incident in a, in a, in a financial institution, in a retail uh, organization, uh, in a telecommunications company, um, you know, what, what's it going to take? I mean, is it, is it just education? Is it awareness? Is it training? Is it a whole change of thought that needs to go on in the industry? Or what do you think? You know, I think really it's just a shift, George. Um, I mean, if you think about it, the cyber insurance industry as a whole is already putting a dollar amount on cyber risk, right? I mean, that's the whole concept of insurance. And so whether their approach is right or wrong, they're already taking an attempt at putting an economic or a financial uh, value on what an incident would cost. And of course, insurance policies, right, they can have sorts of uh, T's and C's and limits and other things that protect them. Um, but the movement has already begun. And because that movement has already begun, I think if there's just a gradual shift in organizations, um, they could start to take a lot of the metrics that they're collecting today, and they're collecting a lot of really, really good metrics, combine that with some additional details, and once they combine it with those additional details, then voila, they have those financial outputs that they're looking for and that I mentioned earlier in this episode. Um, obviously, George, I could say the easy answer is to just go out and look at X Analytics, because X Analytics has already solved this problem, which um, you know, I explain in further details we go through this interview, but um, ultimately at the end of the day, that shift, as it happens, the data is available and, uh, and those financial details could be represented within a relatively short period of time. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about X-Analytics and uh, yeah, I know that you guys got a patent on it and it's, uh, a lot of uh, IP around it and uh, it's doing very well. So I want to get to that for certain, but I just want to understand, I want to make sure that you know, before we get into uh, actually how this is done, that the mindset that people need to have to actually be successful at this really needs to change. I think, the, you know, the audience, you know, the, I guess the message is, yeah, this, needs, this is a cultural shift, I think is what you just mentioned that should happen. And I think once the cyber economics is understood, how do you think it will transform risk management decisions as we move forward? How do you think that's actually going to play out when people start to understand, yes, I can put a number to this, and yes, I need to, I need to think differently about how I measure uh, cyber risk. Hey, George, do you mind if I add one more comment on the shift, and then I'll answer your question? Do you sure, mind? sure, sure. So, you know, related to the shift, 
so there, in the United States, obviously, a lot of the companies that we talk about are publicly traded companies. So the SEC um, put out some guidelines last year, and those guidelines are already sort of, granted, it's guideline, right? So it's optional, but there's an expectation there, right? That's, that, those guidelines are already uh, in the concept of that shift, right? So they're asking organizations to understand if they were to have an impact, what would that impact look like? Additionally, um, if an incident were to happen, say a data breach, then they have a responsibility back to the shareholders to talk about what those damages are um, back to their shareholders and say things like quarterly earning reports. So I think the SEC is going to help with that shift based on those guidelines that they put out last year. And I would expect that as we continue down this journey and as more and more publicly traded organizations get impacted by cyber incidents, the shareholders feel the brunt of that in some capacity, potentially, right? That, uh, that may force that shift to move a little bit faster uh, than just say something that's just a cultural shift inside of organizations. Um, but back to your other question, you know, so I think as cyber economics is understood within organizations, um, then I think, uh, and Andy was commenting on this earlier, I do think the approach is gonna become more of an ROI, a return on investment approach. And making decisions, which is really where true risk management lies. I do th think that organizations based on uh, ROI analysis and ROI simulators are going to start to understand where uh, remediation makes sense. Maybe you remediate certain vulnerabilities and certain assets, but not necessarily all assets. I think it's going to allow them to push back against certain regulation or compliance requirements, especially if they can prove back to the regulator or the auditor that uh, certain controls just do not make sense for their particular organization and it does represent an upside down return on investment. And then finally, um, I do think it's gonna also encourage growth in the cyber insurance industry. I think as we see that shift, more and more organizations are gonna realize that they can get a better ROI, pennies on the dollar, so to speak, uh, by moving some of that risk uh, via a transfer versus remediation to things like cyber insurance policies. Um, and obviously, I know that there's some concerns there with the limits, but I think as those shifts start to become, ha uh, start to occur in a greater population, then I think those limits are also going to open up uh, to allow organizations to buy even bigger and bigger cyber insurance policies uh, that can protect them for future catastrophic events down the road. All right, guys, it's time to transition into commercial break here. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. And what's great is we've just made it easier for you to do just that. So now all you have to do is type in TF7 Radio in any search bar on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram, and you'll find us right away. That's right, folks. Just follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the Chief Analytics Officer of Secure System Innovation Corporation, Mr. Robert Vessio. Whatever you do, 
don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skill shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, Consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. 
Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the Chief Analytics Officer of Secure Systems Innovation Corporation, Mr. Robert Vessio. So, Bob, I want to, uh, I want to jump into this X-Analytics that we mentioned in the first segment of the show. And I, I kind of want to take a deep dive into it with this segment so that we really understand, you know, what this is all about, what it does, and what kind of value it brings. Because I think it's really important, and it really plays into the whole cyber risk theme that, that we're talking about. So what exactly is X-Analytics? So it's a cyber risk method and model uh, that allows organizations to understand not only cyber risk in traditional terms like threat, impact, control effectiveness, inherent risk, and residual risk. Uh, But in addition to that, it also goes a step further and translates residual risk into financial outputs across five distinct cyber apparel categories. Uh, The first one being data breach, the second one being denial of service interruption, the third one being ransomware, which is the combination of the event, paying or not paying the ransom, and then, of course, the corresponding interruption. Um, and then the uh, fourth uh, is misappropriation of intellectual property and trade secrets and swift banking fraud, which obviously all the talk about the Chinese and intellectual property falls into that category. Uh, and then the fifth being cyber physical. So uh, that's where a cyber event would cause either property damage or a human casualty of some type. But that's basically X-Analytics in a nutshell. Uh, that's pretty interesting. So you, you mentioned a couple of things there that we've been talking about on the radio show a few times, and that's, you know, whether or not to pay the ransom. Now, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty interesting one because, you know, the FBI says don't pay ever. And so obviously a lot of small organizations, mid-sized organizations as well, if they don't pay, they go out of business. Right. So uh, how does how does that play into it? And also the last model seems to be a play on the convergent cyber or the convergent security models that we've been seeing that actually combine the logical and physical world. Right. The, the cyber piece and the kinetic piece come together. Um, it sounds like in that space. But as far as the, uh, um, you know, the the the, uh, the use case for, you know, having it, uh, would you pay the ransomware or not? How does that work? Yeah. So. We, just to be clear, right, SSIC, X-Analytics, our goal is to put all of the information on a silver platter, and then we allow our individual users, uh, customers, to make an informed risk decision based on that information, right? So we don't advise one way or the other. Um, However, George, if you're asking me directly, um, you know, I think for all organizations, they need to get back and look at uh, what is the financial gain of paying that ransom versus not paying the ransom. And if they can understand that by using our model, then that's another outstanding use case. Um, and then of course, they also need to consult their legal department. Uh, in certain countries, right, certain regions of the world, uh, it might be best to follow legal guidance and not pay the ransom, even if there's a strong financial benefit to paying the ransom. Um, but again, that's going to be a unique decision that's made on a organization by organization basis. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a couple of different ways of looking at it, right? And um, but from a business decision, I mean, a lot of these people, it, it, it's it's pretty clear to them. From a strictly business decision, if they don't if they don't pay, they're going to go down. Um, they don't, have, you know, they don't they don't have backups, and they're not in a good position to actually restore uh, the, their information. It could be the end of the company, especially you know, considering, you know, uh, their financial situation, where they're at, uh, as far as the maturity level and things like that. What other use cases do you have for X-Analytics? You, you, you need like five or six different modules there, which uh, all sound pretty cool. I especially want to hear a lot about the last one, but uh, what are the other, some of the use cases that you have for the tool? 
Yeah, so there's today there's a there's three primary use cases. Um, one, we have uh, one of the largest insurance companies in the world is using our model to uh, embed um, into their underwriting platform. So as they're processing underwriting applications, cyber insurance applications, um, there are components of those inputs that get processed through the model so that the underwriters at the end of the day can understand um, whether an organization is too risky or not to get insurance or if they aren't risky uh, enough and they do want to extend cyber insurance, then they can use our model to make decisions on how to set the limit and how to set the premium and other things that they put into those policies. That's incredible because right now I kind of feel like everybody's flying by the seat of their pants because they have no way of doing that. And if this tool does that, that's fantastic. But what, what, uh, how long does it take to, to do that for a company? I mean, it's as fast as they can put the data in the tool or? Yeah, so in the insurance use case, uh, we actually worked with the carrier to embed our intellectual property into their platform. So it's a fully automated platform. Um, as they distribute the underwriting application, as soon as they get the results back, they can upload it into the platform and within seconds, the data is available to the underwriters in, in a dashboard. Wow. And it also correspondingly does produce reports that could be extended back to the customer as well. Um, but all of it's automated and it works extremely fast. Yeah, Bob, so that must, your model must get put through the rigor, right? Can you explain a little bit about how, what, what's the, you know, how much the model gets beat up <laughs> right, and tested uh, to enable that? Sure, yeah, so not only in that use case, but in other use cases that we have as well, we, we are expected to go through regular stress testing and validation exercises. Um, we have documented every aspect of the model, not only through our patent, uh, which we filed in 2016 and were awarded patent uh, by the summer of 2017, so it took about a year. But in addition to that, it's also uh, very detailed and written out in model validation documents that are shared within organizations, enterprise risk management teams, and data science teams, um, and I guess could even be further extended to the regulators if they were to ask in certain industries. Um, but then uh, we also go through stress testing and back testing exercises to ensure that the model is performing in the way that it should. Our expectation that we hold to ourselves and that some of our clients hold to us is that we do maintain a plus or minus 4% margin of error. And I can tell you guys, since we've been uh, selling X analytics on the market, we have maintained that plus or minus 4% margin of error. Um, so we're very proud of that. Um, Andy, to specifically get to how that's possible, we spend a lot of time and energy on a monthly basis, aggregating and normalizing various intel sources. Those intel sources uh, are then used to populate back-end variables into the model. In all, there's about 70,000 calculations in the model, um, and a lot of those calculations are dependent on those back-end variables that we keep calibrated on an ongoing basis. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. That sounds right. intense. <laughs> it is, George. I mean, it's amazing, right? I, and I had a first-hand look at it. You know, it's it's really cool what, what Bob's done. And, you know, obviously, I don't know for the audience, but Bob and I worked together at Verizon where, you know, he was just critical in operationalizing risk management frameworks, you know, for, for financial institutions. But, you know, Bob, you know, as you're, you're continuing to innovate in this space, how do you see X analytics evolving in the future? Well, you know, one area that we've been talking a lot about is expanding. So right now the model uh, from a foundation structure, right, to keep data organized, um, we're using Veris. Um, and Andy, I know you're extremely familiar with Veris, going back to the original uh, data breach reports that Verizon was producing back in, I think, 2007. Um, so we continue, I continue to use Veris uh, as a way to keep all of the Intel sources organized. Um, it also, and I can get into this later, 
here as well. As we're collecting from our customers, I also use Veris to keep their data organized as well. So if I'm talking about data coming from, say, a logarithm platform or Splunk platform, um, Veris is the technique that I use. But since Veris is being used and related to invention, right now I have 11 asset groups defined in the model to create distinct scenarios. And we are looking at adding uh, a 12th and 13th and 14th asset groups, so new asset groups. Just to give you an idea of what one of those asset groups would be is um, either outsourced service providers or supply chain. Um, and, you know, obviously that's the new requirements in the NIST cybersecurity framework. It's being discussed a lot in a variety of different forums and platforms. Um, so we just feel since the world is growing, the interdependency that organizations have in other organizations, um, getting that supply chain and the outsourced service providers in the model is a very critical next step. Um, in addition to that, um, I also expect that we're going to create additional cyber peril categories as we move into the future. Of course, I'm going to be watching what's coming through um, in public claims data, uh, obviously news articles where organizations are experiencing financial damage. And as we begin to see how that shapes into the future, then of course that will develop additional cyber peril uh, categories. Um, by the way, one of the cyber peril categories that I'm considering at the moment is one directly related to human error. Um, and that could be because a human is pushing out uh, buggy code uh, into production and then that is causing some sort of interruption to their business. We saw that a few years ago with Amazon Web Services in the Northeast, uh, where the Northeast version of AWS was down for a period of time. Um, but I expect that those sort of error-based things uh, are gonna start to show up more and more as we move into the future. I don't know. It sounds like a lot of thought went into this. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just listening to what you're saying about this tool, and it seems to me like a very intense and very complex tool that delivers a lot of value in places where people are really just trying to search for answers, including the cyber insurance piece, which is huge. How did you come up with this idea? Like, how did, you, how did you think of this? So, you know, Andy was talking about how our days uh, back in Verizon. You know, I, I've been in the industry for a long time, George, and um, I – in a lot of ways was forced to work with models that I didn't necessarily agree with. I, I think all of us probably could say the same, right, based on our past lives. And um, I was always searching for something that was better, something that would truly work, not only to quantify cyber risk for an organization, but would also get uh, from traditional metrics into some sort of financial output, right, that executives and boards could really make a decision on. And uh, I spent a lot of time looking and playing with different models, right, mainly through paid engagements and, and various careers. Um, and I just realized what uh, I needed and what I expected would exist in the industry did not exist. So um, my first mission when I left Verizon was to uh, really sit down with a blank piece of, uh, blank piece of canvas and, and really sit and think about how I could put together such a model um, by the time I hit the summer of 2016, I'd already documented most of those 70,000 calculations I had mentioned, uh, written about a 100-page document that we then filed with our uh, patent attorney, and then we just moved forward for, with patent, and as you can tell, um, it was a successful process. But um, it was really just based on experience of seeing things that were not quite working the way that I expected that they should work in the industry. Now, talk about yeah. being in the right place at the right time. Go ahead, Tom. You got something? Yeah, as I say, you mentioned like regulator and you know compliance and, and stuff like that. Do you align kind of to like ISO twenty seven hundred one, COSO? Is it does it align to that? So if you're using this tool, it's much easier for the um, auditors to understand. So um, by default, 
the uh, CIS, Top 20 Critical Security Controls, is what we use in the control section of the model. And let me just be clear, the model has three distinct uh, variables. Uh, one is threat, and, and obviously there uh, we want to capture information from the customer uh, related to the threat patterns and intersect that with what's happening from an industry baseline. And we keep an industry baseline refreshed on a monthly basis through those intel and research and analysis that I mentioned earlier. Um, the second component is business impact, uh, which really goes further into exposure as well. Uh, but in short, right, that's really getting an understanding of confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And then the third major variable is control implementation. So by default in the model, the control implementation section is built around the CIS, top 20 critical security controls. We chose those controls because we wanted to have a model that could work in all parts of the world and across 21 distinct, distinct industry verticals. And we just felt that CIS was the one thing that could be easily communicated to the executive and board level. It's only 20 controls, but at the same time, it also wasn't specific to any uh, industry vertical uh, or region of the world. Um, as we've moved forward since 2016 to where we are today, we have incorporated the NIST cybersecurity framework and for our customers that we deliver directly to, uh, we've also uh, have incorporated uh, proprietary control frameworks or a mix of other frameworks that they've asked us to build into the model. So we're highly flexible. Um, if you know we're say doing something in the energy sector and we need to incorporate things from NERC, then we'll move forward with incorporating NERC into the model, if that makes sense for our customer. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, it's awesome, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is awesome. I mean, usually we don't talk about, you know, vendor tools the, that much on, on a show. Uh, but I got to tell you, this is so relative to what the discussion around cyber risk, and it's just so relative to some of the other uh, episodes that we've had on Task Force 7 Radio that, you know, it's, uh, it's really a breath of fresh air to kind of hear about, you know, some of this innovative technology that's uh, coming out of uh, SSIC. So, you know, there, there's very little consistency with cybersecurity metrics. I see everybody kind of does it a different way, formulating their KPIs and their KRIs, uh, how they actually uh, act upon them, the, the, the engagement cycle, and, and everybody's swim lanes is usually different. Um, and it also includes, you know, threat data. You know, what kind of threat data they're capturing, how they capture it, how frequent they capture it. Do you recommend a way to organize this vast array of data that we have in, in cybersecurity as it's related to cyber economics uh, and risk management? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the best way to start organizing data, and it's just my opinion, and I like it because it's an open enumeration structure, is Veris. Um, so for those of you familiar with the Verizon Data Breach Report, uh, going all the way back uh, to 2007, they were taking U.S. Secret Service data and some of the Verizon, before Verizon, it was CyberTrust forensics data and intermixing it with other, I think the Dutch government at that time. And so they needed a way to put all of those data sources together, and that became the invention of Veris. And Veris, from that point forward, was given as a gift to the world. Anybody can go to veriscommunity.net and look at the open enumeration structure. Um, but I think, first and foremost, if you start with a public, uh, ex well, I should just say either a publicly available or accepted uh, enumeration structure or taxonomy, uh, then that's a great starting place. Uh, George, I think a lot of the mistakes that organizations make is they want to reinvent the wheel. And so they try to come up with a taxonomy or an enumeration structure that's specific to the organization. 
but then as they start to blend with, say, third parties uh, or regulators, and there starts to become a lot of confusion of which terms mean uh, different things, and uh, it just creates a more cumbersome environment, which I think gets into some of your earlier segments about that convergence, right, the, the ability of having those convergent models. If everybody's on a different taxonomy, uh, getting to the place of convergence is going to be really, really difficult. Um, so we like Varus. Varus has worked really well for us. As we speak to our customers about Varus, it's always accepted because it is an open and public enumeration structure. All right, folks, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, the Chief Analytics Officer of Secure Systems Innovation Corporation, Mr. Robert Vessio. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The rules of enterprise security have changed. Your employees work remotely. Their devices access corporate data in the cloud. Phishing and other threats are intensifying. Traditional perimeter-based security is no longer enough to keep your enterprise safe. You need a new approach that protects your organization from the outside in. Lookout Post Perimeter Security enables protection at the endpoint and establishes continuous conditional access to data based on risk so you can protect your mobile workforce against phishing and other new world threats. Now you can secure the post-perimeter world. Visit lookout.com forward slash task force seven to learn more today. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. 
Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the Chief Analytics Officer of Secure Systems Innovation Corporation, Mr. Robert Vessio. So, Bob, you know, how much value do you think cyber insurance has in the marketplace? You know, I think if it's the right policy, uh, it could have tremendous value. Um, clearly, organizations are experiencing very large uh, cyber incident damages. Um, I mean, just look across the board, right? You got TNT, which is now FedEx. You got Maersk, uh, Equifax, right? There's a ton of them. Um, but the idea there is that uh, as those cyber damages are being realized, uh, if they have the proper cyber insurance policy, they can offset those damages with that policy. Um, and I think that's good for the executives. I think that's good for the board. And ultimately, I think that's good for the shareholder at the end of the day. So if you're, if you're a brand new CISO or a CRO of an organization, um, what do you think you should emphasize in your first board meeting? You know, considering that we're talking about, you know, how we prioritize risk, how we manage and measure risk. And, you know, if, especially if you're the CISO or I should say a CSO. So if you're in the security business, you know, what do you think you should be saying and how should you say it? Yeah, this has come up a lot at, uh, a variety of dinners that I've been at for work uh, related purposes. Um, I find it fascinating that uh, both traditional and non-traditional CISOs are very concerned about talking about damages to boards, uh, to their bosses. Um, it's almost like they're, they're afraid of the topic. They'd rather go in and tell a threat story uh, or tell a story about how well they're doing their job in their first 30 or 60 days on, on the job. I would take a very different approach. If I were a brand new CISO, I would go in and with as much information that I collected up to that board meeting, even if it was preliminary, uh, I would state, from my understanding, I believe our damages will be somewhere between X and Y uh, if we were to have some sort of event, right? Data breach, ransomware, 
whatever it happens to be. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, I would also explain to the board the amount of expected loss we should see on an annual basis due to a variety of cyber incidents that are guaranteed to take place. Um, I think if you level set uh, on that story on the very first board meeting, then I think all other board meetings will be successful. And you can talk about the things that you're doing to play against those two distinct values. Either you're tuning your understanding or you're transferring, say, to insurance, or you're remediating, which is improving that annual expected loss on an ongoing, on an ongoing basis. But that's where I would start. I would start with the financials. So, the, the, so this annual expected loss on an ongoing basis sounds to me like we're basically telling them, hey, look, you're, you're, you know, we're going to have a bad day. We're going to have a bad day, and it's going to happen to us and expect it, and this is how much it's going to cost, and this is how we're going to remediate that risk, you know, right? That's, we're going to manage the risk. We're not going to get rid of it. We're going to manage it. Do I have that right? Or Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, it's impossible to eliminate risk, right? I think right. we can all agree on that. Yes. And so it's guaranteed, right? You're going to lose laptops. You're going to lose iPhones or tablets or whatever else it happens to be. You're going to have the employee that sends data to the wrong customer. Uh, you're going to have an issue where there's a DOS attack against your critical web application, right? Hopefully not on a bad day, right? Like uh, an important trading day for financial services job. But things are going to happen, right? It's guaranteed. And so uh, based on a series of one or more events in a year, there is going to be an understanding of damage. And uh, being able to explain that damage on day one and tuning your understanding of that damage on an ongoing basis, I just think makes you look like a really, really uh, informed CISO. Um, and, I, and I think ultimately at the end of the day, the boards would be very impressed to get that understanding from their CISO. So how about Equifax? I mean, people are using Equifax as an example of how not to handle a data breach in some, in some respects. I mean, I try not to be personally too critical of, of, of cybersecurity professionals. Um, I personally feel like the CISO got you know, slaughtered over there for something that they may have had no really ability to, to see into at, at, at some point. And I know some people out there are probably you know, flipping out over that, what I just said. But you know, I mean, uh, look, if she expects everything to be patched that's in the network, she expects every in the asset inventory, and she expects that people are doing their jobs and putting things in the asset inventory, and somebody doesn't, you know, some low-level employee doesn't do that, and then, you know, that box is, is compromised, and that's the problem. I'm not sure that, you know, she should have took her, uh, the, uh, the beating that, the, that they did. But anyway, look, how... how how do you think there is, a, is anything that the, they're doing that could be emphasized as a, as a positive shift in a sense? Yeah, so you know, going back to my comment on the SEC earlier, um, I think the leadership at Equifax, um, and in some cases, right, the leadership at Equifax post-data breach, uh, has really adhered to that SEC guidance. They've been reporting in their quarterly earning reports um, the amount of damage that they've experienced uh, they've also reported the total amount of their cyber insurance policy and then as claims are being paid out against that policy what those claims look like in terms of financial recovery um, so i think that's a really good story uh related to equifax that, it, that i think is underplayed I, I hear almost no one talk about it at all um but i think equifax is showing a leadership quality uh by that post data breach handling and the reporting to the shareholders um, through those quarterly earning reports I think you make a good point there. I think it's very common that uh, you hit see a major data breach and then everybody runs from that company. And then obviously they just had a breach. So they invest heavily in it. 
and then people are reluctant to go back to the company, you're like, actually, the one that just got breached is the one you want to be at because they, they, you know, they, they now know their board is asking, they've got the funding, uh, you know, you see that time and time again and like maybe government contracts being lost or big customers leaving. But I, I think you're bringing up a good point. It's like, you know, a lot of times they handle it really well. It's, it's that wake up call and then obviously the whole industry gets better, but sometimes the ones who got hit last are the ones you actually want to be with because they get it now. Yeah. They, they felt the pain and they're making smarter decisions moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, just a fun note related to Equifax and I think Andy brought up the question earlier about um, the things that we do to uh, related to stress testing or validation related to the model. Um, I wrote a blog right after the Equifax data breach occurred. We used X analytics to make a prediction about the damages related to Equifax. Um, and then based on one year later, right? So this is now the earnings report that was published in October of 2018. My prediction was off by 2.7%, meaning that I was under by 2.7% um, on my prediction of the damages that Equifax would experience from that data breach. Um, so we're very proud of that. Uh, and again, that just goes back to all of those back-end variables that we keep maintained on an ongoing basis. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. A 2% margin, that, that delta is not very big. So that's, uh, that's very cool. So look, we're, as, we're, as we're marching into the future here, you know, what, what kind of cyber perils do you see as the, the most concerning for executives and, and boards and, you know, and shareholders too, who I think really never think about cybersecurity. That's why it's not getting enough attention. If shareholders demanded it, it would definitely, you know, if, if they spoke with their pocketbooks, right, it would definitely happen um, in their bank accounts. But I, I don't think they pay enough attention to this at times. What, what, what are they looking at into the future? What's going to happen here? You know, for me, I think there's two. Um, we're spending a lot of time talking about data breach. Almost every time there's something in the news about a cyber incident, right, it's related to data breach. It's what Congress likes to talk about. Um, but I think really at the end of the day, the two cyber perils that I would be paying attention to are interruption. And interruption could come from things like DOS attacks or an employee pushing out buggy code or something like a ransomware event. Interruption events have been huge historically in the past couple of years. Um, you know, Merck, I think, saw damages around 870 million. Uh, FedEx, 400 million. Uh, Maersk, I think, was somewhere around 300 million, right? So, I mean, those are not small numbers. Those are really big numbers from an interruption-based event. And by the way, most of those events were settled within a two-week period of time, right? So it's a lot of money uh, to lose in a, in a two-week time period. Granted, there's follow-up, right? But um, I think that's huge. The other part of it is um, misappropriation of intellectual property. Um, I, it's very clear, right, that there's a lot of espionage that's taking place from some of the major players out there, right, state-sponsored espionage. Getting access to intellectual property is very, very important uh, in the international trade market. And there are companies that have tremendous trade secrets and components of intellectual property that if they were to be exposed, you're not talking millions of dollars of losses. You could be talking about billions of dollars of losses at the end of the day. Um, so for me, those are probably the two most important areas in cyber peril moving forward in terms of damages, right? Is interruption-based events and misappropriation of intellectual property. So Bob, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate taking the time to speak with us this evening. I hope to have you back often. Uh, X Analytics sounds like an awesome tool, uh, obviously, and best of luck with it. Outstanding. Thanks, George. Thanks for having me on. 
All right, folks, it's time to bounce up out of here. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 